You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. And uh, this week, uh, as I notice every week, there are several things in life that I just don't understand, okay? Now, not always, it's not always a lack of understanding because of lack of knowledge. It's just I don't understand why people follow certain trends or why things apply to people's lives because I see no value in my own life on these things. And so I'm going to give you a few that I've uh, ran into this week uh, that I just don't quite understand uh, why these things exist or how to approach them. Number one, uh, is DC parking signs. Um, <laughs> I mean, where to begin, right? Like, uh, it's hard enough to have to parallel park everywhere in this city, uh, but then to not even know if it's legal or not anytime you park. Uh, like, what does this even mean? Like, I don't even know uh, where to begin. So my motto with DC parking is the motto of Nike, just do it. Like, you know, it's probably not the, the wisest thing for pastors to say, but I just risk it all the time anyways. Um, all right, number two, uh, the, now, now, okay, hang with me for a second. Um, this is a picture of supposed to be fine wine, okay? Now, this is, I was having a conversation with a guy this week, and he was just elaborating on how he's in this wine club and how he buys all these expensive wines. Now, I'm not here, whether you drink or not, that's not the conversation today, okay? I just don't understand why people spend money on fine wine. Like, you're drinking it, okay? Hundreds of dollars do not need to go towards this concept of fine wine. Let, let me just give you a life hack. There's somewhere very fine to find wine, and that is Trader Joe's, okay? <laughs> it's very good. It's, it's a life hack there, okay? Next, um, okay, this is going to offend some of you. Pickleball, okay? <laughs> I was talking to a, a, a member of this church earlier this week. She shall not be named, uh, but it was 2 p.m. on the afternoon, and she was playing pickleball. I'm like, I want your job. I don't know what you're doing to be able to play pickleball at 2 o'clock on a weekday, but... Um, Guys, I just, I don't get the rage. Like, I just don't. I don't understand it. I love sports. I'm not against recreation, but I think some sports should stay in the retirement beach communities. Pickleball is one of them, okay? Um, since I've offended most of you, I'll just go ahead and offend the rest of you here with this next one, uh, Taylor Swift, okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, look, guys, I, I know she saved the economy or whatnot. I get it, but... Uh, I, I just don't understand what people love about her. I, I really just don't. Now, uh, these are really silly examples today, and honestly, I just need something to lighten the mood as we go into a very hard passage today. Uh, but the reality is, when we come to passages like Romans 11, we can have the same disposition. I don't understand it. And not only do we not intellectually perhaps understand the words that Paul is articulating here, but we may have a very limited understanding of how it applies to our lives. We can read something like Romans 11 and say, I, I, number one, it's hard to understand. It's really confusing here. And number two, how, how does this actually apply to my life? I don't understand what we can actually get out of this. And a lot of pastors can actually sympathize with that. Uh, there's a lot of pastors and even some commentators who when they're doing a commentary on Romans or they're preaching through Romans, they get to Romans 11, they just kind of skip over it. <laughs> uh, they just kind of say, well, I, don't, I really don't know how to deal with some of the confusing things that Paul's saying here, so let's just kind of move past it. Now, as much as I can sympathize with them, I think that we should dig in here for a moment. Because at King's Church, we believe that it's important to preach the Bible even when it comes to difficult passages that are hard to understand. It's a lesson for us to understand that even though there's hard things sometimes for the Bible for us to comprehend, it's important to do those hard things. It's important to learn from those hard things and to press in deeper into who God is and, and what he's doing and working out his purposes in our world. 
And Romans 11 is one of these places. Now, if you have a lack of understanding of what's in Romans 11, like I do, uh, still after studying it this week, uh, you're in good company because Peter himself even says that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. And I'm just going to go ahead and speculate here that Peter was talking about Romans 11 uh, when he said that, uh, that, that sometimes it's just difficult to understand, but we're going to do our best to dig deep into what this passage means and, and then how it applies to our lives. Because in the, the premise, and I'm just going to give you the, 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 the main idea here, why this is so important to us, is because it shows us the character of God, the integrity of God, and the faithfulness of God to, to hold to his promises for his people. Okay, that is the main idea of this te- text. When we look at all the complexities, it really comes down to this. Is God faithful? A- and if he's faithful, is his promises still true? So is God faithful in his promises to his people? The argument that Paul's building is essentially this. This is what's at stake, God's integrity. He says in the beginning, if God uh, has rejected his people, if God has failed his, in his promises to his people, then how can we trust anything else that's been said in Romans? Right up to this point, we've, we've heard all these great promises and the culmination of all these great promises in Romans chapter 8, but if Paul is saying, if, if look, if, if God's love for his own people has ended, the, the Israelites in the Old Testament, if God's, if God's love has ended for them, then how can we trust that his love will never fail us in Romans 8? You see, what Paul's getting at here in the crux of it is, is he's been pointing us in, in Romans to the God of Israel. He's been pointing us to, to this God who has made a way through the offspring of Abraham, as chapter 4 reminded us, that this Messiah, Jesus, would come and he would take away the sins of the world and we'd be able to be found righteous in him and experience salvation in him. But if, if God has failed in his promises, if he, is, if he has failed in his promises to his people, then how can we trust in the God of Israel as Gentiles. That's what's at stake here, and that's why Paul is so adamant to bring this up to us today, that emphatically he's going to remind us that God has not rejected his people, but in fact he's been faithful to his people through his promises. And so I, th- I think today hopefully that we'll learn a little bit about the character of God, and, and we'll learn how to praise him all the more because of his faithfulness. Now we're going to follow our outline straight from the text today, and we're going to look at it in three headings. Number one, a remnant people. So Paul's going to pose a question in verse one, and he's going to answer it through this, this, this concept of a remnant. And then in verse 11, he's going to pose another question. We're going to see that it's going to develop this kind of rescue plan uh, that's going to be, that shows God's faithfulness to his promise. And then finally, Paul's going to break out in this response of praise, this doxology, the culmination of everything we've learned. How should our response be to all this? Well, I think it's fitting that Paul ends with praise today. We're going to look at that as well. So as we kind of jump into the text, let's just kind of recap over the last few weeks. We've been trekking through some of the most difficult texts in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, 10, and now 11. As we said a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 9, Paul is emphasizing God's sovereignty in salvation, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And he uses examples from the Old Testament to reveal this to us. He talks about how God chose Isaac over Ishmael, and how God chose Jacob over Esau. And and he's showing us here that his salvation is not based on human merit, but it's based off of his mercy and in his sovereign purpose. And we get to the end of of chapter 9, and he's revealing to us that through this, that that there have been those who have been called by God that Israel as a whole has rejected God. And we get to the end of chapter 9, and we, what do we do with this? Well, then Paul says, no, 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 look, God is still faithful. His word is still true. So he, he pivots to chapter 10, and he reminds us that God's word is still true, and that there's hope. There's not only hope just for Israel, there's hope for the Gentiles, which is all, uh, most of us in this room, right? There's hope for us because anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quote from the book of Joel. And he reminds us that our salvation is, is found in the righteousness that Jesus provides for us, no matter if we are Jew or Gentile in chapter 10. 
And he ends uh, chapter 10 with, with saying that this is, not, this is not God failing in his word, this is God fulfilling his word, that all nations will be able to call upon the name of Jesus and experience salvation. Well, then that brings us to our question today. Well, if, if Israel has rejected God, then has God rejected Israel? Has God rejected the Jews? And that's the first question that, that is uh, phrased here in, in verse one. And Paul's gonna give four arguments real quick to demonstrate that God has not rejected his people. Look what he says in verse one. He says, for I myself, right, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So what's the first argument to his answer of why God has not rejected his people? Paul says, look at me. <laughs> like, like my testimony is a testament to the fact that God has not rejected his people. I'm a Jew, and I once was very hardened to to the work of God through Jesus Christ, and now look at me. We cannot say that God has rejected his people if he has not rejected me, Paul says. But he builds on this argument, and he also gives us the theological reason. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Again, in chapter 9, we, we talked about this idea of being foreknown. It means that God had foreordained to bring Jews to faith in him. And he's saying, look, there's a theological argument here, too, that God is continuing to bring people to himself. And, and he, re- he responds on this with, with, again, the Old Testament. He talks about how God uh, had Abraham, and Abraham, excuse me, Abraham had two sons, right? And then Isaac was the chosen son. And then, again, uh, through that, Isaac had two sons, and Jacob was the chosen son, showing that God has kept his promise that there has been a people that he has known. And then he builds on this argument, not just a theological one, but then he goes even further. He says, no, look, you can look in the Old Testament and you can see an example of this, of God's faithfulness, that God has not rejected his people. And he brings up Elijah, the prophet Elijah. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him, Paul says? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. In other words, Elijah's in this moment where he feels like he's all alone. He feels like Israel has abandoned God and that no one believes anymore. And God says, look, Elijah, get off your pity party for a moment. Let me remind you that I'm still redeeming people. And there's a a remnant of 7,000 right now who are not dropping their knee to a false god. Now, I think there's an application for us here from Elijah, because a lot of times I think we feel the same way, don't we? Uh, In life, we can feel like we don't see God at work right in front of us, and we believe he's not at work at all. But the fact is, he's doing something beyond our comprehension. And if we were to look at human history, if we were to look at the history of the church, there's no way we could see how God moved through human history and and laid out this precisely that way. He moves in ways that that are beyond us, but there's also another point of application for us here, is that we too can feel alone like Elijah. Uh, Maybe it's in your workplace, maybe it's in your home, uh, maybe it's in your apartment complex, maybe it's it's even on your college campus if you're a college student. You might feel like, God, I am the only one who believes. And in those moments, we turn to Jesus and we remind ourselves, no, look, God has always had a people and you're not alone. Just like Elijah, you're not alone. God has a people and he continues to have a people and he wants to press into that people, the church, to be on mission together. And so there's a point of application here and he says one more argument here. And that is that grace matters. He says, look, God has, been ch- has, has a people, a remnant, has always existed, that has been chosen by what? By grace, he says. In this present time, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
essence, what Paul is saying is, look, God has not changed in his character in the ways in which he is uh, bringing upon salvation. It has always been by the means of grace that he is saved, not grace mixed with works. There's no kind of backdoor, side-door interest in the kingdom of God. Paul says it's always been by grace and nothing else that saves us. If you're in this room today and you're a Christian, you're saved by grace. Just like Paul says, there is a remnant of believers from Israel, Jews who have believed because of the grace of God, not because of their Jewishness, but because of God's faithfulness to them. Well, then verse 7, he says, well, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, he's using Israel here to talk about the majority. And he says, the, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And he quotes again from David. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a, a retribution for them, and let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, why were they hardened to this truth? Well, Paul says, remember what he says in verse 6 of chapter 9, that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's just what Paul is reminding us here, that even though the majority of Israel have not obtained it, even though they earnestly sought it, as we saw in verse 10, what are they seeking? They're seeking a righteousness, but it's a righteousness based on works. But Paul says the elect, meaning the, the remnants that have been chosen by grace, the remnant who have believed on God, they've received it. Because if there's one thing that we can learn from the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 through Romans 11 is that we cannot be righteous on our own. That our righteousness comes from Jesus and belief in him. So Paul says, look, look, they, they've sought a righteousness based on their, their efforts, but we find our righteousness in Christ. And because Christ has become a stumbling block to them, they are blind to the work of God in Christ, which means they've rejected God. And so Paul answers this first question. He says, look, God has not rejected his people. No, there's always been a remnant of people. There's always been a remnant of people who have believed in him. But what about the rejection now? Well, Paul then rephrases another question in verse 11 here to show us his rescue plan, God's gracious and merciful rescue plan. The first question that Paul raises in, in verse 1 is essentially this. Is Israel's rejection total? Meaning that has all Israel rejected God? And has God rejected them? He says, no. There's always been a remnant who have believed. Well, then he rephrased the question here. In verse 11, he says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And in another way, he's saying, is Israel's rejection final? Have they come to the end of their rope? And Paul says, absolutely not. In fact, even their rejection is part of God's good rescue plan. Look what he says. He says, by no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, Paul says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul talks about this, this rescue plan that he's unfolding here that, no, though Israel has not come to the end of their rope. They have not come to the end. They have not come to this final moment of rejection where there's no hope. There's actually hope for them. And he says, but, but let's, let's roll this out. There's actually a lot of good that is happening right now. And the first thing he says is that because of Israel's rejection, because of their trespasses, it has opened the doors for someone else to believe. And that is the Gentiles. Do you see that there? And we should be glad for that today. 
Do you notice that the destinies of both Jews and Gentiles, they're not separate from one another, they're actually working together, they're related. And, and the best picture we can see of this is actually the book of Acts. Notice how Paul operates in the book of Acts. In every town he goes to, where does he go to first? Synagogues. What is typically the response he gets there? Now, not many people believe, some do, but mainly they're hostile to him. Sometimes they even want to kill him. So where does he go then? He goes to the Gentiles. And what is the result? Many of them believe. Do you see here that in Israel's rejection, it's actually made a way for the Gentiles to hear the word of God and to receive it and to believe it. So now there's this multi-ethnic church, both of Jews and Gentiles, so that you and me, Gentiles like us, can be now brought into the family of God to be part of the fold. But he says there's another reason for this. He says another part of this rescue plan is that because the pendulum has now swung and Gentiles are coming into the fold, he, he hopes that this would actually make Israel jealous, he says. Now, what does he mean by that? That's an interesting concept. He, he's not talking about kind of that sinful jealousy that we read about in Scripture. No, what he's saying here is he, he's hoping that when the Jews look to the Gentiles now as they are enjoying the riches of knowing Jesus Christ, that they would look at that and they would say, I want that. The best illustration I could come up with was it's one of my favorite shows, Parks and Rec, uh, which is a great show. And there's a scene in, in a Christmas episode where there's this guy, Jerry, or Gary. His name changes throughout the show. And uh, he's kind of the, the guy that everybody makes fun of. And um, he throws this Christmas party. And, and all his coworkers have rejected him. They, 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 they have not taken him serious. And he loves them. He adores them. He invites them to this Christmas party. And they don't come. Uh, they reject his, his invitation, they make fun of him, but then they find themselves at the end of the night looking through the window of his house at his Christmas party in the freezing cold, desiring to be in there. Because they finally realize the, the love of the invitation, right? That Jerry loved them and he wanted them to be a part of that, and now they're looking through the window wishing they were. And that's precisely what Paul's saying here. That he hopes the Jews get to a point where they are jealous, where they look at how the Gentiles have fallen in love with the God of their forefathers and say, I, I want that now. And this is a great point of application for us today. That are we taking so much pleasure in Jesus that unbelievers want what we have? When they see our life, when they see our contentment, when they see our generosity, when they see our joy amidst trials, does it cause them to perk up and say, I want that? It's a very challenging thought for us today to appreciate the closeness that we now have with Jesus and to see that God is actually using us as an attractive witness to his glory and to his love to others around us. What we really notice here is that God has a heart for Israel. He wants to save his people. And Paul concludes with this thought that if, 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 if Israel's inclusion, excuse me, if their rejection means riches for the Gentiles, then how much more will their inclusion mean? He says it's like, it's like life from the dead when they believe. But he continues here, and he shows us really what our disposition should be as Gentiles then, reading this, as this pendulum has swung and the door has been opened for us to believe on the Messiah, he used this analogy. He says in verse 16, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he's now going to use this analogy of a tree. He says, If some of the branches were broken off, and you being the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. 
They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not be proud, but fear, verse 21. For if God did not separate the natural branches, neither will, excuse me, spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen and God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, Paul says, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now this can be really confusing, so I'm going to try to simplify this analogy as best we can. He has this olive tree, and the olive tree represents the people of God. And the root of the olive tree represents the forefathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then the natural branches from the olive tree represent ethnic Israel, right, the offspring of Abraham. And then the wild olives shoots refer to the Gentiles, right? Paul refers to us as the wild ones, okay? Uh, we're crazy. So he, the illustration here is that in the midst of all the complexities, what he's getting at here is simply this, that as Gentiles, remember who you were so that you do not become arrogant. That is his point. His point is, do not become arrogant towards the Jews. Do not be puffed up towards the Jews. You, the wild olive branch, are only able to grow because you've been grafted into the root. You've been grafted in the tree which you now draw nourishment from. In other words, he says you can't have an arrogant attitude or look down now upon the Jews in their rejection or their disbelief because we have a Jewish Bible and we have a Jewish Messiah. <laughs> And we do not support the root, Paul says, but the root supports us. So notice in verse 20 through 22 what our attitude should be of our salvation. He says it shouldn't be one of pride, it should be one of fear. Paul is calling us here to meditate on the kindness and the severity of God. You might say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Romans 8 and Romans 9, it, it, it talks about how, how salvation is so certain, right? Romans 8, then nothing, as we just were singing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why should we be fearful then, Paul? What Paul is saying is simply this, that faith is not presumption. You see, the Jews presumed that because they were the chosen people, they were the choice people. And because of that, they believed that they were in because they were physical descendants of Abraham. It didn't matter how they lived. And Paul says, don't fall into that type of mindset, that type of presumption. Because the Christian life is one that says we continue in the kindness of God, not presuming upon the kindness of God, but reveling in the kindness of God and also being mindful always of the severity of God. Why? Because the severity of God should have been poured out on us, but it was poured out on Jesus instead. We should always be mindful of that, that God's severity has been poured out on Jesus, and for that, we are grateful that he took our place. Now, this is important. Because having this mindset about salvation keeps us from being complacent. It, it, it keeps us from relying on our own strength and our own performance in our relationship with God. So what Paul's telling us here is, look, if you have faith in Jesus, you should have assurance of that salvation. Absolutely. But you, you should never be arrogant about it. That's what he's saying. Have assurance, but never be arrogant about it. And then he continues here within the third phase of this rescue plan. He looks to the future here. And it gets really complex. We're going we're gonna to try to do our best to understand this. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
and in this way, all Israel will be saved. All right, let's go to the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, look, uh, all right, so, so Paul now returns to this kind of future rescue plan for Israel. And Paul says, I'm giving you a mystery. What do we know about mysteries? Sometimes they're hard to understand. And in fact, they're not meant to be understood fully. And so we come to passages like this, guess what? We're not going to fully understand it today. So we should approach it with some humility. Uh, when you see this mystery, what is he talking about here that's complex? He says, well, there's a partial hardening uh, has come upon Israel. And he says this is temporary. And then he says that all Israel will be saved. Now, almost every single word from the end of 25 to the beginning of verse 26 has been debated. Literally. I mean, there is there's entire theological libraries written about these verses. There are charts and graphs about the end times about these verses. There are foreign policies in the Middle East centered around these verses, okay? There's a lot that hinges on this. So we're going to do our best to try to understand it, uh, try our best to understand what is the most plain reading of this text and why it matters. There's three questions we want to answer. Number one, who is Israel? Number two, when does Israel get saved? And number three, how does Israel get saved? And again, we're going to fly through this, so if you want more to dig into, I'm happy to recommend other resources that I read this week. Uh, number one, who is Israel? Now, it may seem like a simple uh, question to answer, but there's actually a lot of debate on who is Paul talking about when he says all Israel will be saved. And I'm going to give you two kind of common uh, positions that I think we should have a charitable attitude towards because I think both of them uh, could be faithful readings of the text. One is simply this, that some believe that when he says all Israel will be saved, he's referring to the church. That Israel is the, the church, meaning that uh, it's, it's the true believers, those chosen, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, wh why do people come to this conclusion? Well, there's other places in the New Testament that refer to the church as the uh, Israel of God. Paul does that in Galatians 6, verse 16. Now, I think it could absolutely mean this, and, and it would not contradict the text in any way. However, I personally believe that there's a few um, issues we have to overcome to believe that. The first is simply this, that in verse 25, he also uses the word Israel here. And when he uses the word Israel here, he is referring to ethnic Israel, to differentiate from the Gentiles. Now, personally, it would seem like it would be kind of odd for Paul then to switch the meaning of Israel in ver one verse, right? That he'd go from verse 25, where he says that Israel refers to ethnic Israel, but then in verse 26, Israel refers to the inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles together. And, and, and on top of that, when you look at the olive tree itself, it seems that Paul's emphasis here is actually to showcase here the, the kind of the distinctions. That, that we come to salvation, we, come to the, we have the same root, but there is a distinction between the natural branches and the wild olive shoot. And then you have the question of the mystery itself. And this is just a question to, to think of and ponder for a moment. If Paul is saying this is a deep mystery and he's talking to Gentiles and Jews about this mystery, is, is the mystery really that, that, that Paul is saying that the elect, all, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, will be saved? If we know that, he's already rolled that out in Romans chapter 9. So perhaps that's what he means, and that's a really good reading of the text, but, but maybe he does actually mean ethnic Israel in some ways here, which is where I kind of land in my own position. I think when he says all Israel will be saved, he's talking about an ethnic Israel. Now, the question then becomes, what does he mean by all Israel, <laughs> right? Uh, now, that, that phrase is also debated uh, pretty, pretty wildly, uh, but let me give my best interpretation of this. Uh, when you see the phrase all Israel, you see both in extra-biblical texts and in the Bible itself that it doesn't necessarily refer to every single Israelite ever born. It, it refers to a majority. It refers to a general sense when it talks about the people of God. And that's why I think probably the best reading of this is. When it says all Israel is saved, he's talking in a general sense, the majority of Israel, not every single Israelite ever who has ever lived. 
And so he says all Israel will be saved. He's talking about there's been this believing remnants throughout history that has believed in God, but then there's going to be a time when, when the majority of Israel will believe in Jesus. Now then the question becomes, well, when is that going to happen if we hold to this position? And again, there's a lot of debate on this, and I'm not going to have a lot of time to go in on this. Uh, some believe that perhaps before the, the return of Christ, there will be kind of this mass revival where the people of Israel will believe upon Jesus and be saved in, a, in a mass quantities. Others believe that it's just kind of happening over time, that there's a trickling effect throughout history that Jews, more and more Jews, are believing in Jesus, and there's going to be a point where we're going to look and we're going to say, the majority of the Jews actually believe now. Now, wherever you hold your position, I think what's true here is that this falls in line with Paul's disposition, his burden for the Jews, that in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, he prays and he yearns that they would believe in Jesus. And notice now how he is in awe of this mystery of God's wisdom, that God would make a way for, for the world to know him and that he has not neglected his people. And that Paul is saying, this is a mystery that's profound, beyond my understanding, but that, that there will be a time where the, the veil will be lifted off my people. The, the Jews will believe in Jesus. Now again, how will they be saved? Well, he continues in verse 26 here, and he explains the deliverer will come from Zion, quoting from Isaiah, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were one, at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So the book of Isaiah here, the deliverer, quoting from Isaiah, it refers to Jesus. How is this we're going to believe? They're going to believe in Jesus. Notice the point here is that Israel gets saved the same way we get saved, by faith in the Messiah. Which is why, no matter how we may interpret this, Paul is encouraging us to continue to share the gospel with our Jewish brothers and sisters. That there are not uh, two different ways to salvation here. Paul is saying they believe in the same God who can take away sins, the same Jesus, the same Messiah, the same rescue plan, the same rescuer. And then notice in verse 28 and 29, he also reminds us that God has not rejected and replaced his people in his own purposes. It's not somehow now that he has thrown the Jews aside and he says, all right, plan A didn't work, so now plan B, the church. That's not what he's saying. He's not replacing them. No, look what he says. He says, yes, they're enemies because they oppose the gospel at this moment. But he says in relation to God's ultimate plan and purpose, they are loved by God. Why? Because the promise that God made to Abraham will never, ever break. He says God will never revoke his calling and his love for the Jews. Yes, they're enemies of the gospel. Yes, they're enemies because they're rejecting the gospel. But they are loved by God. But isn't that exactly what Paul says of us in Romans 5? That while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, he loved us. He demonstrated that love for us and that Christ died for us to reconcile us to himself. See, Paul concludes this really uh, hard passage here by saying that both Jews and Gentiles can now find mercy in Jesus. Notice he says that all have sinned, just like he says in verse 3. We've all been disobedient. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
But now God is showing us that there's no preference here. He used the Jews to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and he used the Gentiles to reach the Jews. And he says Jews and Gentiles both have sinned and both can find mercy in Jesus. Which is why, as we'll pick up in a few weeks, Romans 12 will say, now in view of God's mercy, this is how we should live. Now, there's a lot to reflect on. There's a lot that I didn't cover. There's a lot of debates and other topics that we could go into from this passage, but how should we respond to this today? Well, I think it's fitting to respond here as we close with praise. Romans 1 through 11 has been a heady, precise, theological formulation and argumentation that leads Paul to utter amazement here. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? His kindness is beyond us. His ways are beyond us. He is so generous, we cannot repay him. And then he says in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul says he is the center of everything. He gives order to everything. He is like the sun in which everything revolves around and makes sense and fits in this life. And look, I understand that at times as rational people in the West, we like to understand everything and we don't like when things are beyond our comprehension, right? And sometimes that can affect the way we view God and his promises and his faithfulness to us. And we say, God, I, I will give you only what I can get in return. I will pray if I know a certain answer. I will give if I know a certain response. I will act a certain way if I can get something out of this. But notice Paul says that is not the God we serve. And so when we come to hard passages like this that are beyond our ways, Paul says it's precisely why we can trust him. Because he is a God that can blow up every single one of our human categories. And that's why we can stand in amazement and in awe and wonder of what he is doing because his ways are unsearchable. So his judgments are higher than our, ours. Paul says precisely this is why we trust him because even though he is beyond us in so many ways, he has been gracious to reveal himself to us. And that's what we leave ourselves with, the wonder of the gospel we can come to him and we can say, oh, the depths and the riches of his wisdom and his ways and how gracious he is, how he is so gracious that we can never repay him. Why? Because he brings light into darkness, because he brings hope amidst our sufferings, because instead of punishment, he has brought forgiveness. And it's precisely because of him that we can worship today because the wonder of the gospel, that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. Though we sinned against our creator, our creator said, no, I'm going to redeem this world through my son Jesus. I'm going to send him. He's going to redeem them. He's going Gonna, uh, he's going to take their sin upon the cross and then he is going to come back and renew this world. That is the wonder of our great God this morning. There is nothing more fitting now to come to the table, just like Paul says here, and in wonder and praise and adoration, worship him. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.